Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at innovation and creativity. How approaching problems with the right mindset can make all the difference in the world. How harnessing your chi can unlock creativity you didn't know you had. And the importance of play in helping us maintain our creative muscle. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Michael Gelb, author of Creativity on Demand, How to Ignite and Sustain the Fire of Genius. Michael is the world's leading authority on the application of genius thinking to personal and organizational development, and the best-selling author of 14 books, including How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. He's an acclaimed speaker and consultant who works globally with Fortune 500 companies, small businesses, and nonprofits. He's also a gifted teacher of Aikido and Qigong, and is a professional juggler who has performed with the Rolling Stones. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you. So let's start off today with a big picture question to set the stage for the rest of the episode. What role does creativity play in innovation? I love that question (laughs) because uh, you need them both. You can have creativity without innovation, but you can't have innovation without creativity. So, So the nova in the word innovation means new. And creativity is what you need to come up with the new idea. Innovation means you then take that new idea and actually apply it in a practical way that has value. So they go together uh, intimately, but you need to be trained to think creatively. You know, the greatest developments in human history have come from our ability to think creatively and then translate that creative thinking into practical innovations. But unfortunately, most people haven't been trained to think creatively. And if you haven't been trained to think creatively, you certainly won't be able to innovate. Okay, great. So it helps in, uh, in, in creating something that will ultimately provide value, right? Exactly. Yeah, that, that's, that's my orientation. If it's And I even think that way about, you know, creativity is that if it's creative, it's going to be actually valuable, helpful, useful in some realm of life. Mm -hmm. It could be in terms of solving a business problem. It could be for an individual coming up with the idea for the next step to take in their life or writing their first book or creating a poem or a play or a song or a dance or uh, a new uh, way to relate to any of the disciplines that they might already practice and how to synthesize them in their lives. Uh, For me, uh, besides my own practice of of teaching people how to think creatively, which is my greatest passion, I I love helping people write their first book, Mm -hmm. start their business, solve important business problems, And then I work with companies to uh, develop a more creative culture. We teach creative thinking in companies and get them to 
build cultures that are more creative, and that leads to a lot more innovation. Okay, great. So let me ask you about your latest book. Uh, it's titled Creativity on Demand, How to Ignite and Sustain the Fire of Genius, uh, available now on Amazon. And by the time this airs, it will be in bookstores uh, around the country. How would you describe it to someone if you were giving them the one-minute overview? Well, I've spent 35 years studying how to develop a creative mindset and the absolute best, most potent techniques for mastering the creative process. And I've written about that in, in a lot of previous books, most notably in How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, uh, and in another book called Innovate Like Edison. I wrote another book called Discover Your Genius, How to Think Like History's 10 Most Revolutionary Minds. So this has been my main focus. But what's really unique about this book is I discovered the missing link to really access the creative mindset and fully apply the creative process, and that is how to, how to cultivate and work with creative energy. So this book brings together the best of what I've taught about the creative mindset and the creative process with secrets of how to raise your baseline of creative energy. Okay, great. And one of the things you write about in the book as being vitally important to creativity is a person's mindset. So one thing you write about is the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Can you go into the difference between those two? Yes, with pleasure. Well, uh, this is based on the work of Professor Carol Dweck at Stanford. Uh, she wrote a wonderful book uh, simply called Mindset that summarizes her decades of research into the effect of people's attitudes on the results they get in life. And you know, this is something that uh, many people have believed, but it's great that we now have a lot of science to back up the belief that your attitude really does affect your performance in, in, in a profound way, and that effect gets greater over time. And very simply, the fixed mindset believes that talent alone should suffice and that if things don't come easy, you probably shouldn't be doing them. <laughs> uh, people with a, with a fixed mindset tend to be very, very self-critical. And unfortunately, they, they rarely uh, look to uh, get practical feedback, and they don't like to work on things that are really hard for them because they, they have this, uh, unfortunately, uh, faulty notion that Everything should come easily if they have talent, and that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, people with the growth mindset, on the other hand, believe that learning is what it's all about. They, they, they do what's called deliberate practice. In other words, they practice the things they're not good at, and they are much more open to critical, constructive feedback than people with a fixed mindset. As a result, they are continuous learners. And what Dweck found is that in most fields, the growth mindset trumps talent. In other words, a person with a growth mindset and less talent will eventually outperform a person with more talent and a fixed mindset. Of course, in life, it's the optimal thing to do is to find your greatest talent and then embrace a growth mindset. And that's, that's uh, 
uh, Sir Ken Robinson, who's a, a dear friend of mine and was very gracious, he wrote the foreword to Creativity on Demand. Ken calls this finding your element. And your element is the sweet spot between your passion and your talent. Uh, and if you add a, a growth mindset to something you're passionate about and talented in, you probably have the most fun and accomplish the most. Yeah, that makes sense and harkens back a little bit to something that uh, one of our previous guests, Horace Dediu, talked about. He's a noted Apple analyst, and I was asking him about the uh, Apple new product development process, or I think it's the Apple new product process, ANPP. And, you know, there's not a whole lot that's known about it, but one of the things that he said is that everybody everybody thinks that, you know, Apple just hatches these genius products and they launch them to the market and they're wild successes. But what nobody really realizes is there is a ton of prototyping that goes on behind the scenes. I mean, they discard hundreds, if not thousands of product ideas before they ever see the light of day. So if you're, if you're in a fixed mindset, you're probably going to think, well, I built this, it's great, let's get it out there. Whereas if you're in a growth mindset, you're constantly looking to improve it in in ways that other people might not look to that is exactly that is and that's how the growth mindset applies in a corporate culture so that that's what i help folks do is 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 free themselves from the fear of making mistakes and getting it wrong and feeling that they have to have the right answer right away which is an attitude that's just not at all conducive to creativity or innovation and instead get them to embrace this, well, it's the first principle for thinking like Leonardo. In Italian, it's curiosità, this, this passionate curiosity, which is, after all, our birthright of genius. And if you can really make that part of an organization's culture, first of all, people are going to be a lot more engaged. They're going to have a lot more energy. They're going to generate many more ideas. And they'll be way more creative and innovative. Yeah, love it. So uh, another anecdote from the book that I really found fascinating was this. And it was, it's that seeing the world through a child's eyes has been found to spark creativity. So can you share a little bit of detail about the study by Zabalina, I believe it was, and what the study found? Absolutely. Yeah, the study is called Child's Play, Facilitating the Originality of Creative Output by a priming manipulation. And it's by uh, Zabalina and Robinson, who are great uh, researchers in this field. And what they mean by a priming manipulation, that sounds very uh, technical, but it's, it's actually pretty simple. It's, it's, it's they gave two groups a task, you know, 76 people all together, divided them into two groups, and they were asked to write for 10 minutes about what they would do if they had a free day. Uh, but the priming manipulation that they refer to is that one of the groups was asked to imagine that they were seven years old and that school had been canceled. So as you, as you could probably guess, the group who answered the question from their normal, prosaic, mundane, uh, quotidian uh, adult orientation, you know, they said, well, I'd catch up on sleep, I'd do chores, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the group who was asked to imagine that every day uh, as though they were kids out of school came up with these wonderfully uh, creative ideas about what they would do. And then, as you might imagine, uh, uh, the group who thought of themselves 
uh, as children who are just you know, primed to think of themselves uh, from a childlike mindset uh, scored much higher on creativity tests uh, when they were just simply suggested to them that they think of themselves in that way. So I was recently on a, a, a Chinese uh, with a Chinese uh, Qigong master. That Qigong simply means energy cultivation. It's ancient, ancient uh, discipline for strengthening your creative energy. And before every exercise that this wonderful master taught, he said, "Okay." Think of yourself as one half inch taller and 10 years younger. <laughs> Isn't that great? Uh, would, would that if that were true. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to get to, to Qigong also, but, uh, but, but I loved the anecdote in the book. It was about uh, Mona Lisa and the difference between uh, a, a room full of kids and a room full of corporate executives and what they were, uh, and, and the questions or comments that came up after talking about uh, Mona Lisa and the Mona Lisa smile. Uh, so the, the group of kids, you know, they said things like, oh, she has a secret or she knows something we don't know. And, you know, all kinds of wonder, wonderfully creative things. And the the verdict or the the main thing that came out or the first comment that came out of a corporate executive's mouth was, oh, I heard her smile was caused by a dental problem. <laughs> you did a great job of recounting that story from the book, and it, it's a story that actually comes from my experience of teaching this uh, for many years with all kinds of groups. And yes, that was a group of gifted children in uh, Rappahannock County, Virginia. There were 80 kids ages 8 to 11, and I, what I do is I show people the picture of the Mona Lisa, and I ask them, what is she smiling about? And the kids immediately imitate her smile, go deep into the state of engagement with the Mona Lisa because they have this natural curiosity and openness, and they're not afraid of looking silly or foolish. And it was, I mean, it's exactly as you described it. One of the kids says, oh, my gosh, she's got a secret. Another kid says, yeah, she knows that everything has an opposite. And then the kids start saying opposites like boys and girls, day and night, good and bad, life and death. And yes, the, <laughs> when I asked the one group of corporate executives, you know, what is she smiling about? Somebody said, I, I read in the Wall Street Journal that the famous smile was caused by a dental problem. <laughs> so, you know, my, my mission is to try to get those uh, uh, corporate executives to uh, access much more the openness, the curiosity, the playfulness, the growth mindset of the child, which is, you know, that's our birthright. What, why do kids learn so quickly? Why are they so fabulously imaginative? Because they're open and they're profoundly curious and they are gifted almost every healthy child is gifted with a phenomenal amount of energy. And unfortunately, that energy tends to get dissipated over the decades. But part of the genius of Qigong is that you can begin to revitalize. You can, at any age, experience a renaissance of this birthright of, of energy and 
it, it's 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 a you know that's why I think it's a missing link in the creative process because most people would really actually like to be creative, but they don't think that they have the ability. They don't think that they have the talent. And even if they think maybe they could learn, and it's a, if they would accept that this is a skill that they could learn, they don't necessarily have the energy to act on their creative ideas. So that's why you know, I consider the energy to be such an important piece, and that's what's unique about creativity on demand. Okay, so, so let me ask you about Qigong. Uh, qi figures prominently in the book, and you mentioned earlier that it's basically a way to channel creative energy for listeners out there that may not be familiar with qi or qigong, can you go into those concepts a little bit? I sure can, and I can explain it in a very simple way. Uh, I mean, the first thing to know is this is a, a tradition that goes back about 5,000 years, and it, it began when people who were living in a much more natural environment than we live in today. I mean, they got up at sunrise, they went to sleep at sunset, they were way more tuned in to the rhythms of the sun and the moon, the seasons, uh, the stars, the wind, the flow of water. They studied the movement of animals. They were, they were much more one with nature than we are today. And, and they, they looked at how in, in their own movement, in their own breathing, uh, in their own uh, use of their energy, how could they be aligned with nature such that, and this was not just some mystical, spiritual uh, practice, these are really super practical people. I mean, they had to you know, stack hay, move stones, build dams. Uh, they were interested in martial uh, prowess because they had to fight battles. If they got ill, or wounded, they had to recover quickly uh, because their environment was often very challenging. So most people are familiar with the idea of Kung Fu, Bruce Lee, martial arts, Tai Chi, mm -hmm. and the basis of those martial arts, the real power, you know, the reason Bruce Lee just stands out from almost anyone else in that whole genre was his incredible energy and the word for that energy in Chinese is qi. Uh, and same thing, most people nowadays are familiar with the idea of acupuncture. Most people know about feng shui, mm -hmm. uh, which is the uh, science and art of moving this energy uh, naturally through a living space so that it feels better to live in. And acupuncture is simply removing blocks to the flow of this energy. I mean, the state of illness is a block to the natural flow of energy through the meridians, and the state of health is the free flow, the natural flow. So we're familiar with the idea of this energy known as qi, uh, with the martial arts, the healing arts, and even with uh, interior design of your home uh, or your office, uh, but it's also the Traditionally, the secret of creativity in, in the arts of China, a you know, painting, for example, is judged by how much life force it seems to project. So is music, so is poetry. And this is, you know, this may sound uh, exotic and as though it's from another culture, but 
most everyone will recognize that, you know, if you think about your favorite painting, you know, one of my favorites, uh, besides everything that Leonardo ever did, uh, uh, one is uh, uh, Van Gogh's Starry Night or Sunflowers. And almost everyone recognizes, yeah, there's, there's amazing energy in those paintings. Or if you hear the music of Mozart uh, or John Coltrane, uh, it's not limited to genre. You know, Michael Jackson doing his moonwalk uh, uh, or singing Billie Jean. I mean, there's so much uh, powerful energy. It's not the notes. It's not the dance moves. It's not the brush strokes. It's the energy. That's chi. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. Great answer. Great definition. Uh, let me ask you to to define something else for us. Confusion endurance is a concept that you write about as being vital to people that want to improve on some aspects of their creative thinking. What is confusion endurance and how can listeners improve their capacity for it? (laughs) That's great. Well, confusion endurance is a term that I coined uh, to refer to what psychologists used to call tolerance for ambiguity. Uh, And when the world is changing as it, always has been, always changes, but just about anybody who's paying any attention at all has noticed that the pace of change has accelerated. And the faster things change, the more people experience ambiguity and uncertainty. So in the 1980s, companies, big companies, started to look for managers who had what they called high tolerance for ambiguity because they saw things changing faster, more reorganizations, restructuring, uh, new management systems, more mergers, acquisitions, more uh, global business, uh, much, much faster pace of uh, technological change. So they, they were smart enough to know, okay, changes is not only not going to slow down, it's going to keep speeding up, and we need people who can deal with that. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to tell you, it's, it's fascinating. I just uh, was invited to uh, work with a client, a major, major company, global company, and the theme of the, they were trying to decide on the theme of the meeting. They have a new leader, and they were trying to decide on the theme of their meeting, and and they wanted to, uh, they were going back and forth between should it be creativity or should it be dealing with change. And obviously, I think the two go together. And the new boss uh, came down very clearly and said. We don't want to title anything change management because this boss said, and I love this, that's an outdated concept. Change is part of our everyday lives. We have to stop acting as though it's some special circumstance and we need a special seminar for it. We need to accept, and this is the the big point I make in, in creativity on demand, is that forget about tolerating ambiguity you need to embrace it. You need to enter into the heart of it. So that's part of what confusion endurance means is that once you understand that creativity is about coming up with something new, that means if it's really new, you'll be surprised by it. If it's really new, it's something you don't already know, which means that if you feel uncertain, if you feel confused, odds are you're moving in the right direction to find something new. If, on the other hand, you insist on certainty 
and feeling clarity at all times, you'll probably never create anything new because you're already, you're just a, 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 you know, stewing in what you already know <laughs> instead of stewing in the unknown, which is where new ideas percolate and then are born. So, so let me ask you one thing you mentioned in the book as being very effective at helping companies sustain creativity is writing a short and sweet statement that serves as their reason for being. Uh, can, can you share a few famous examples? Uh, absolutely. Well, uh, perhaps the most famous example, uh, uh, IBM, they, they summed up their, the essence of the company in one word, think. That was that, that's their slogan motto for many, many years. And then Apple came along and they came up with think different. <laughs> and I just love those because they're, they're so evocative of the essence of the organization and they provide a point of alignment for people internally and for customers and clients externally. Uh, you know, another classic is uh, Nike, uh, just do it. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, Nike's Nike views, their mission is to clothe the athletes of the world. And they believe that if you have a body, you're an athlete. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, it just that, uh, uh, knowing what they stand for, what they represent, uh, uh, you know, their, their, their logos is one of the most powerful in the world. It even has a name that most people know. It's the swoosh. Mm -hmm. And the swoosh is the sound of somebody running past you because they're wearing Nike stuff. <laughs> so, you, so you better get it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my point in the book is, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've been helping uh, clients uh, over the years clarify their vision, mission, and values, their strategy, their goals. Uh, in some cases, I've even helped them with their logo, integrating the whole thing into their training and development programs and uh, recruiting and hiring. And, uh, but, uh, you know, my concern uh, for individuals is helping individuals in their own lives be clearer about their sense of purpose, their vision, their mission, their values, their own personal training and development uh, program so that they can live richer, more fulfilling, more creative, more beautiful lives. And, you know, th there's a reason every company does this. They spend a lot of time, money, and effort in defining this because mm -hmm. the more clearly you, you define your purpose, the more energy you have. Uh, so we learn direct means for cultivating energy. That's the Qigong. But the indirect mean of cultivating the most energy is to, is to really define what you stand for, what you care about most passionately beyond just you know, earning your living and surviving, mm -hmm. what's the meaning and purpose of your life. And there's no more important question for any individual, and I like to use these creative methods to help people clarify that and then translate it into what they're doing every day because that's when we're the happiest. If, if what we're doing every day is a reflection of what we care about most passionately, well, then we're, we're more fulfilled and we have way, way more energy. Okay, great. And an, uh, another thing you write about is the importance of play to unlock creativity. 
why are we predisposed to needing periods of play to help kind of press the reset button in our brains? Well, think about it again. Who, who are the most playful people? The, Kids. the children. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just that's just the operating system for learning and development and growth. And unfortunately, as people get older, they often lose that sense of playfulness and they get overly serious. And I always consider over seriousness to be a warning sign of mediocrity. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and here's the thing that's so fascinating too. If you think about many of the greatest geniuses in history, Let's take Leonardo, who I think of as the number one greatest genius of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Freud wrote a book about Leonardo in which he stated the great Leonardo continued to play as a child throughout his adult life, thus baffling his contemporaries. <laughs> we think of Einstein, you're the modern icon of genius. He was renowned for his playfulness, his sense of humor. He loved to just do silly things. One famous story, he was walking across the Princeton campus, and he ran into a group of students, and he said, excuse me, from which direction have I come? And they said, oh, Professor Einstein, you came from the cafeteria. He says, oh, thank you, then I must have had lunch. (laughs) (laughs) So these these great minds are, are super playful. And the other thing that's fascinating is, you know, I, I study Qigong very intensively. I work with many of the greatest masters, certainly in the United States, if not the world. And the best of the best are almost always smiling. They're joyful. They're playful. There's this delightful childlike quality because that's, that's it. That's the juice. That's the energy. And the really good news is if you have that, you can cultivate it and strengthen it so you have more joy and creativity every day. And if you feel like you've lost it, you can get it back. And that, that is just a tremendous beacon of uh, hope and inspiration for a lot of folks who feel like their best days are behind them and uh, that there's nothing they can do about it. The good news is there's a lot they can do about it. Okay, got it. Important things to know. We're getting a little low on time, Michael. Any final parting words of wisdom for listeners out there that are looking to tap into their inner creativity? Yes, there are three sections to creativity on demand. And and if you just listen to the names of each section or part of the book, that will, will give you the clue, the structure of what you need to know to embrace a much more creative life. The first section of the book is called Mastering Creative Energy. And this is something you can learn to do. You can raise your baseline of creative energy. The second part of the book is called Mastering the Creative Mindset. And in that section, there are 10 attitudes that we can all cultivate. And what's unique here is that I don't just give you exercises to cultivate the attitudes. There are energy exercises that support each attitude. And the third part is mastering the creative process. So here's where you learn the specific practical techniques, the ones that I think are most potent 
for for generating new ideas, and you learn how to apply them to your most important uh, problems and challenges. And again, we support them with energy practices that just supercharge these these aspects of the creative process. So mastering creative energy, mastering the creative mindset, mastering the creative process. Okay, great. That's a great note to close on. Michael, thanks so much for writing the book. Thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing with listeners how they can bolster their creativity to bolster their innovation. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Michael Gelb, you can visit his website at michaelgelb.com. You can also find him on Twitter at at Michael J. Gelb. That's G-E-L-B. His book, Creativity on Demand, How to Ignite and Sustain the Fire of Genius, is available on Amazon.com and will hit bookstores around the country on September 2nd. Thanks again to Michael Gelb for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode where we're going to try a little something new and innovative for our 30th episode. We're going to bring you some select, never-before-heard footage from the cutting room floor of the Innovation Engine Podcast Studio. You'll hear from Warren Berger on the connection between Zen and the art of asking beautiful questions, from Horace Dediu on why being a successful product designer in this day and age requires a deep understanding of human psychology and much more. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.